Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am very, very, very excited to be here today because my guest today, uh, Donna Rosenstein, one of the greatest uh, casting directors of my uh, or anyone's generation, and we're going to have a lot of fun today. Uh, But before I start, I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you. If I could thank every single one of you personally from all over the world that has emailed me, FedExed me, it's just incredible the response that you have made, and I I am so, so grateful. And I am so grateful, in fact, that I decided today that the first email I got today from anybody... I was going to read on this podcast. And so I woke up this morning where my kids jumped on me at like 5.30 in the morning. And of course, the instead of enjoying the moment as much as I could after they left the room, I went to my computer like the idiot I am and had to get my fix. And there it was in my inbox, an email that had come in from my website, barrycats.com. And I want to share with you this because I promised it would be the first one, even with a good one or a bad one, and thank God they've all been good. This really is the reason why I think I do this and, again, why I'm so grateful. From Eric Subject, a big thank you from the bottom of my heart. 
Barry, I've listened to your podcast for the last eight months, having been a diehard fan of you through more stories. I am ever grateful for your guidance and guests. Also, over the last eight months, I've lost 80 pounds and call my build athletic or hard body now. Using that confidence with your guidance, I was able to create a holy shit moment at my workplace. By making my intent known to have the AV manager's job in addition to the network manager title I hold when he retires this year, upper management accepted my proposal and it will be official with pay in July. The confidence, the way I'm able to conduct meetings and even express how I feel on the inside to the outside world has a lot to do with your podcast. However, my holy shit moment came 30 minutes ago, and it belongs exclusively to you. I volunteered to be a chaperone this year for my school's senior prom in 10 days. This is very special to me, with it being held at the Computer History Museum. While it is not my event to partake in, and my function is to be in the background, it requires two things. Number one, being undeniable. And number two, bringing a date. I spent all last night rehearsing, practicing, and getting ready to ask my date to join me next Saturday. Combined with my new body and newfound confidence, I own the room with just her in it. And she very happily said yes. I've moved a lot of mountains in my life, Barry, including preventing my father from killing my entire family. It is what makes people like me what we are today. With 100% certainty, I can tell you what I just did 30 minutes ago made any war I have ever fought feel easy. Thank you for giving me the tools to grow as a person and create a holy shit moment like today. Being able to walk up to the woman I want to share that evening with and ask her as a man for her hand beats out any accomplishment to date. Thank you, Eric. So thank you, Eric, for that email. That's awesome. And believe it or not, that email has a lot to do with the kinds of things that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, and before I get into that, I just want to tell a story that sort of relates to my guest today. Um, it involved casting. As many of you know, I, I had the uh, fortune of representing Dave Chappelle for about eight years from when he was 18 to about 26 years old. And he got to do $400 million movies during that time. And one of them, which I consider to be a real big break for him, was a movie that he was very nervous about auditioning for. And every time I'd give him the script, uh, he would lose it. And I'd give him another one and he would lose it. And after about the fifth time I gave him the script... I, I really felt that he wasn't really losing them. He was figuring out a way to try to get away from the fact of going in the room 
and auditioning for this particular part, which was a very, very, uh, it was the kind of part that was very, very critical to the movie and had a lot to do with the movie. And the movie um, was The Nutty Professor. And the director, uh, who's a tremendous man and who started in the stand-up world uh, for a brief time, Tom Shadiak, was a guy who I considered to be a, a genius in a way. And uh, if you follow Tom Shadiak and look him up, you'll see that he has given up essentially the entertainment business and has done, I believe, uh, two documentaries as well as a book about uh, the world that are just so uh, impressive. I, I strongly suggest you, you look him up and, and get those films. And he will be a guest here soon if it kills me. And so he'd set up auditions for him to come in. And normally you go in and you meet with a casting director uh, when you're doing any audition. And then you'll go in and, and read for the director after you make that pass. But Dave had, had passed by so many different auditions on this film that it was getting to the point where it was at the very last minute. And I'd gotten the word from his agent at the time, Martin Lisak, who was an Abrams artist at the time and is now an agent at CAA, a really, really wonderful man and a wonderful agent, uh, crazy as a cut snake, but just an amazing man and um, just amazing at what he does. And Martin called me and said, Barry, this is it. This is the last night that that they're casting this they're casting at universal on the lot um it's it this is it you gotta get them here or else it's over and so i couldn't rely on dave coming there on his own so i went and i picked up dave and i drove him to the audition something that i rarely had done but i thought it was a really important part and if you ever saw nutty professor this was the part of Dave playing an over-exaggerated Def Jam type comic who was shitting on Eddie Murphy and his date in the crowd on a couple of different occasions. And I think Dave was very conscious of his relationship to the African-American community. And because he was such a great storyteller and because he was such an intellectual and he had a strong point of view as a storyteller. At the height of Def Jam, his comedy wasn't exactly the kind of comedy that you would think would work well in that capacity. And so a lot of times when he'd do the black rooms, he would do them to a mixed response. Sometimes he'd kill, but sometimes he'd have a really hard time. And it was a very challenging room for him to work in in the very beginning. Not to say that he didn't succeed, but there were times when he didn't and it was hard. And this was to channel a role of a guy who was the ultimate Def Jam act. The over-accentuated, just complete animated act that basically said nothing that was smart, nothing that was unique, nothing that was original, just totally over the top. And we get into the audition, 
And it turns out there is no casting director they know of. It's just Tom Shadiak there, and it's like late at night in the office. It's like 9 o'clock in the office. And get the word that this is the last audition that he's doing before he chooses who he's going to take. And the pressure is on Dave. And Dave was the kind of guy that was just, it's so hard to articulate this, but you never knew, you just never, ever knew if he was prepared. You never knew if he had looked at material, if he hadn't. You never saw him looking at material. You never, whether he did, how he did his process or whatever it was, there was always that tension of not knowing what was going to happen. And when I brought him there, I realized as I dropped him off that he didn't have a script on him. So I had one with me and luckily asked me if I had some pages, had whatever I did. And I'll never forget this. Martin was like pacing back and forth. Martin Lisak, he was like, so, you know, he looked like, uh, it just, he looked like he was on some kind of drug or something, even though he wasn't, he was just like, cause it was a big moment to get this film if Dave could get it or not. And right before they call Dave in the room, he takes me aside and he says, can you get me a towel? Any kind of towel. I said, what? He said, can you get me a towel? I said, oh, you you sweating? You need some? No, I, I need it for the character. I have an idea. I have an idea, something I want to do. And somehow, some way on the lot, I ran around, I found him a towel. And he went into that room. And if you're a manager or an agent and you have an artist, one of the most incredible things about our job is there is no evidence for us of what happens. Now you might say, well, you put people on tape now and you can sort of get the tape if you ask for it and you have a relationship. True. But the fact is when the artist goes in the room for a test for a movie or whatever, we have no idea what's happening. It's the artist's word and perception Versus the casting director and the director's word. And there's only one word that counts. And that's the director with the help of the casting director. So Dave went in and I'm listening on the outside and he's channeling this Def Jam character that's like part his best friend, Charlie Barnett, who was the greatest street performer of all time. And part like the craziest Def Jam character you would have ever seen, like and a combination of maybe Doo-Doo Brown, if you know him from Atlanta, uh, just the most animated craziness. And I believe he had him do it again and a third time. And I kept hearing it laughing, laughing in the other room. And then he came out with the towel, and I said, how did it go? And he says, great. We drove out of there, and a short time later, we got the call from Tom Shadiak that he got the gig. And the reason why I wanted to tell you that story is that 
if you're an artist, the thing is, is that you always have your talent and your instincts that you need to believe in. And if you have the goods, it doesn't even matter how many times you delay yourself or in your mind, you think that, Hey, I don't know if I can do this or will I be right? Or what will people think? The bottom line is if you can just go in that room and trust your instincts and give everything you have, chances are you're going to have the best chance of winning. And as an actor or an actress going into these auditions, people like Donna Rosenstein and people like Tom Shadiak, all they want when you walk in that room is to give them an original take that blows them the fuck away. That's all they want. All day long, they're seeing ordinary. And the lesson learned from Dave Chappelle and Nutty Professor is extraordinary wins. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know about this one guy who kept reaching out to me over and over again. Persistent. His name was Michael Purcell. And he came to L.A. and met with me, and he told me 10 years ago he created a company called Global Cash Card, where he figured out a way to take payroll, make it paperless for companies of any size, and then allow for somebody's weekly salary to be instantly loaded anytime, anywhere onto their own personal Visa payroll card for free. So I did some research and found that it cost around $3 for every paycheck to be cut by a firm. 
So that means if you're a medium or large size company, you have like a thousand checks you're writing every week, you could save $12,000 a month or over $135,000 a year. So do yourself a favor, go to globalcashcard.com, schedule live demo, speak to Michael Purcell, see how easy it is to start saving big money today, and trust me, you'll be glad you did. I am ready, and I hope you guys are ready, because we're going to have a great time. I always love these times sitting across from people who have changed lives of many, many people, and then through those decisions have changed other people's lives. I'm going to give you an introduction for my guest today, and it may be longer than the cold open, so hopefully you won't fast forward. I've known this woman my whole life, it seems, because Jay Moore's first sitcom he ever got cast in was a show called Camp Bicknell, which later became Camp Wilder, with none other than Tina Majorino, Mary Page Keller, Jerry O'Connell, and a little actress by the name of Hilary Swank. And that's how I started uh, knowing uh, Donna Rosenstein. But just to give you a little history about her, she's done so many, so many things in casting. I mean, to mention all these things would be just craziness. But I'll just mention some of the television things she's been involved with, just so you know. Right now, she has been working on a little show called Castle, what's probably done over 100 episodes. She's casted Grim, Necessary Roughness, uh, Last Man Standing, uh, The Ghost Whisperer of over 100 episodes, of which Jay Moore was in, uh, Life on Mars, October Road, Living with Fran, even the Muppets, Wizard of Oz TV movie she did. Uh, there's so many different things. She did the Miracle Worker television movie, the Brian Song television movie in 2001, which the original was such a big uh, thing for me. Um, uh, she's worked on several other films uh, that uh, I think you would know the names of, uh, like Rambo, Rocky Three and Four, Stan Alive, and Beverly Hills Cop. She was a mainstay at ABC from 1984 to 1999, uh, where she was the head of casting for the majority of that time and started her road to greatness on a show called Three's Company, casting the final role. Please welcome my guest today. We're going to have the best time ever, Donna Rosenstein. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You ready to have some fun? I am. You know, you said Ghost Whisperer, and I flashed to a moment where I was in my car. Um, one of the best things about my Tropic Ghost Whisperer was my parking spot. I had like a parking <laughs> spot like right in front of the building at Universal with my name on it, and I've taken that with me. Um, <laughs> but I remember we talked, you know, we were talking about Jay Moore coming on the show, and, you know, Jay hadn't been doing a lot of television and it was kind of elusive getting, I don't remember who was, who, who represented him, but you, but I just said, I'm calling Barry, <laughs> you know? And I remember I reached you <laughs> on the phone in my car and I won't, I remember us discussing the numbers and we made it happen at that moment. 
Yes, we did. Because, you know, everything always happens with you when I talk to you. It's great. That's when I know good things are going to happen is when I talk to you. A lot of times you're doing pilot. This should let you know something about relationships. People think, oh, you have relationships with people and anything can happen the way you want it to happen. Not true. I could call Donna and she's in the middle of casting a project and I think certain clients are right for it and she'll be like, no, Barry, not right, not right, not right, not seeing them. Nope, 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 thank you. And just dismiss me like I'm like the tidy bull man you put the top back on. But I know if she does that, I know what she's talking about. So I defer to her. And yes, I can be persistent sometimes and I might get somebody in that I think is right. But for the most part, normally the people who get things with her are the people who are deserving of them. And with the Ghost Whisperer, it was a unique thing where we could, we were able to do a deal with Jay, which is very rare, where we did a consecutive guest set kind of uh, a situation you would normally think that most people would want to be a series regular on a show. And most people do, but Jay liked to do a lot of different things. And so the whole key was to do a deal for a show where he could be flexible. And if he got another show that he loved, that he could go into that if he wanted to. But but he loved The Ghost Whisperer and he had a great time with it. And he enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was some of his best work. And I thought that he and Jennifer Love Hewitt I thought he brought out the best in her. I thought they had great chemistry and it was a great on-screen relationship. And Jennifer Love Hewitt, there was something about her. I don't know what it is. You know, there's certain women that that uh, you meet and it's like it doesn't matter just what transcends. There's just you walk away and you actually just say to yourself... My God, I mean, this. I, I, every single man feels like this. This woman's going to be a television star for the rest of her life. I mean, I you just say hello to this woman and you turn around, you walk away with a limp. I mean, it's just that kind of thing. There's just there was something about her. And when you met Jennifer Love Hewitt, it wasn't like when you met her that, and I think if she were sitting here, she would say the same thing. It wasn't that she was like a, a supermodel or somebody who was this person that she would think was this unbelievable, like worldly person who could walk into any room in the world. But she had this thing where she was so beautiful and so sexy and she would just create this vibe around her. And what was amazing is that women seemed to feel the same way around her as men. And they didn't feel intimidated by her. They didn't feel like competitive. And, and she had this navigation about people that was just really, really incredible. I like to start at the beginning. I like okay. to go way, 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 way back. Okay. And I'd like you to take me back, like, because I know that there's some things about your early years in college that are very substantial and have affected a lot of people where you went to college. But just take me back before college and, and before you ever thought about being in any part of this business, where were you? What were you thinking? What was happening? What made you, what inspired you to get in this business? Well, I grew up in um, an area of Brooklyn, New York called Canarsie. Canarsie is an area of Brooklyn that will never become trendy. Um, it very blue collar. Um, the houses were all in a row. 
in those days because um, I'm not as I look younger than I am. But I, in in those days, growing up in the '60s, we all played out on the streets. Growing up in the '60s, what were you like? Two? I yeah, I was two. Yeah, I was, I was not even two. Um, we had cement. You know, if we were lucky, we had cement backyards. But you and I haven't thought about this at all before this sitting on this couch with you. But I have a vision of myself arranging a talent show on my street. Because what we did in those days, you went after, you you know, you got ready for bed and you went outside in your pajamas. And that was a really big deal. And I remember the streets of Canarsie, East 85th Street, organizing a talent show. And I think that led in my high school career. Um, we had something I called Sing, which I know there's been some films made about that was part of the, you know, not that similar, dissimilar to what Glee is right now, but, you know, we would do these productions and I became very involved in those. And um, I performed, but I was really behind the camera. You perform. What did you perform? I sang, I danced, and but I conducted, conducted the, the, the group singing. And I wrote the songs and, you know, we would take, you know, write our own words to existing songs. And uh, I realized that behind the scenes was where I really belonged. I got to college and my first couple of years of college were... Well, you went to college at SUNY Binghamton. SUNY Binghamton. Um, Binghamton, New York. It's called Binghamton University now. Um, a really good school. I probably couldn't get into it now, but um, <laughs> back then, back then I did, and it was it was basically a liberal arts college um, as part of the. Um, it was the upper echelon of the uh, state universities, and I was a child of the 70s. For the first two years of college, pretty much, I didn't really know what I was studying. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I was just kind of there. And one day I was home um, on a break. And my father, who unfortunately passed away in 1989, um, who was a great inspiration to me, he was not an educated man. He was a traveling salesman, but he loved me and knew me better than anybody in the world. And he had reconnected with an old army buddy of his from World War II. My father played um, in the World War II band. Um, And... He walked in the house and he said to me, I just met with, you know, my friend Teddy Jack. And, you know, his daughter is producing Captain Kangaroo. Wow. Captain Kangaroo. I'm sure, Barry, you can explain to your audience what Captain Kangaroo is. This is going to be difficult to explain because (laughs) the audience, I I can't believe that I remember this because when I was a little, little boy, Captain Kangaroo was the only children's television show on at that time that I remember. And Captain Kangaroo was a guy in some kind of military suit slash dress suit, looked like a leisure suit. He had like a bowl haircut, uh, a mustache that looked like uh, 
sort of a Groucho Marx, only blonde. And I remember his sidekick, which was called Mr. Green Jeans. And um, it was the only television show the kids watched to learn anything back then. There was Um, no Sesame Street. There was no Nickelodeon. There was none of that. Um, And also, at the same time, um, Jane Pauley had been hired on the Today Show. And that was a really big deal that a young woman was kind of the head running, you know, kind of like the head interviewer, or we call it, or host of the And again, back then, the Today Show was the only morning news show that anybody could get at that time of our lives. And those two things together, my father said to me, you should be working in television. That's what you should do with your life. And I went back to school the next year and realized that SUNY Binghamton didn't have any kind of, very few schools had communications. It wasn't a TV media that was, it wasn't that popular. Syracuse University at that time had, had the incredible program. And, um, but that was going to a private college was not, not in my radar, but, um, I started to learn about something called the Innovational Projects Board at SUNY Binghamton, where you could basically create your own major. And I went and I met with them and I told them what I wanted to do with my life. And they actually let me create my own major. And I had an advisor and my degree is in communication arts. And I took theater classes. I took journalism classes, which which they did offer. I did an internship at the local affiliate WBNG um, in TV in Binghamton, New York. And um, I had a car then, which is really big deal. A little Chevy Vega. <laughs> I remember driving to WBNG with it. And my whole life changed. There was, I, I cut my hair short Well, I went through the Farrah Fawcett and the, and the Dorothy Hamill, for those who remember those haircuts. But I all of a sudden went from being a college girl to a sophisticated businesswoman in a college environment. And I created a television station. There was a radio station and I was a DJ. I had a late night jazz show, um, But it was WHRW-TV, which I think is now called Binghamton TV. We have to look that up, what what it's actually called right now. But um, I created two shows. One was called The Flame of Life, which was an improvisational soap opera. And I wrote outlines. And I had my friends from the theater department, who wound up being my roommates, all be in the show. And, oh, backtracking a little bit, I actually was walking through some buildings and found a room full of audiovisual equipment. In other words, all the equipment necessary for a television station was just sitting there and nobody was using it. And a man by the name of Joe Kiley, whose son has actually been in contact with me and and, and, and an actor, was paid to run this equipment, but it never done, done, 
nobody was doing anything with it. So we brought it, we brought it to life. And um, it was pretty funny, this, this soap opera, because it was <laughs> like a Saturday Night Live sketch of a soap opera. So by the time I graduated, I was like ready to work. There wasn't, I graduated six months early and th- literally the day after went, took a resume that w- was as Lynn Nesbitt, one of the great literary agents of our time as well, who was one of the first people I met, said to me, I love these kids who have just graduated college that have two page resumes. <laughs> because there was all, you know, internships and all that stuff that people who are graduating put, you know, and I see those resumes when I interview assistants. Um, but it's true. You know, the thing is, and she was sort of being facetious, but also serious at the same time, because if you are out there listening and you are starting out, even if you're in high school and you're listening and are in college or whatever, you should be doing every single thing you can in every area or lane of what you want to do that gives you the experience to put on that resume. Now, I've always been the kind of person when I interview people, I never look at a resume. I I never want to know anything about the person until I sit down with them because I want to hear how they articulate things. Mm-hmm. But I'm not always like everybody else. And sometimes people are just in departments where they just look at things and you're, you can't even get to the people no matter how hard you try. Um, and so that's what Don is talking about and how, and that's probably why she moved to the next level. So we are in 1977 and little me is, takes the train from Canarsie into Manhattan with a handful of these resumes. And in those days, you know, way pre 9-11, pre cell phone, pre everything, you could just walk into buildings. So I would just walk into buildings and drop off my resume at all kinds of places. And after eight hours, I had about six or seven job offers. One, but, but again, you know, this is something I just want to say to to our listeners. It's like a lot of times, like I'll hear from somebody in any kind of vocation that they're in. Oh, it's so hard to get a job. I'm having such a hard time getting a job. And I ask them, well, are you getting up at six o'clock in the morning and getting out the door at seven and going from company to company and walking in and dropping things off until eight o'clock at night every day. Well, well, no, I've, uh, I've, you know, I've, I've emailed out some stuff to human resources and I'm just waiting for a response. I'm like, well, you'll be waiting your whole fucking life because it's just not going to happen. You have to treat getting a job like it's a job, like getting a job is a job. It's even a harder job than the actual job. It's a very hard job. And and that's the thing that people don't do, but you did. And I think what also helped me tremendously is during the my summers in college, I did temp work. I worked in incredible places. I worked at Condé Nast. I had a really long-running summer gig at Bergdorf Goodman, where 
I worked for the president of the store. And before computers, there was something called dictation. And what secretaries did, their bosses would dict- would tell them what the letter was. They would dictate it to them. They didn't have the app. There's a dictation app that I have on my phone. And there was a shorthand that you used. And then you transcribed it. Well, I didn't know how to do that. But I kind of faked my way. And the president of the store, Irene Mark, dictated a letter to me. I was like, shit, what am I going to do? I can't admit I don't know how to do it. But I just went back to my cubicle. I remembered everything that he said. I wrote my own letter. And he was thrilled. And they actually had offered me a career in, in fashion retailing. Anyway, so that day, I had an offer to work for Lynn Nesbitt at ICM. Michael Fuchs at HBO. Michael Fuchs was the president of HBO. ICM, for those you don't know, is International Creative Management, which actually is not a management company, which is one of the top three agencies in the world for theatrical and literary and uh, all sorts of talent. I ironically had a job offer from production, someone in production at ABC News. And this was all off the street. And what did you choose? I chose ICM. Um, Why? I think I chose it. It was the most money, $175 a week. Also, you could rent an apartment in Manhattan for $300 a month. So it was kind of a little bit relative. Um, And it just seemed, I don't know, it seemed to make sense. And they had a human resources person there who told me I was articulate and eloquent. And I just, uh, why I made the decision? I don't know. Because I was so set on working in television. And yet I took this other job um, at a talent agency. Um, My career with Lynn Nesbitt didn't last very long, but I wound up working with another literary agent um, named Roberta Pryor, who represented Peter Jet Benchley of Jaws fame. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing his residual checks come in from the book and the movie. And I've never seen anything like that in my life. And in those days, my job was um, listening to dictation on what was called a dictaphone. Which is very similar. What's is an app? I mean, there are many dictation apps, right? I mean, anybody can do this. I listened and I typed up the letters, used a lot of correction fluid, sent out manuscripts, and one day, a an agent from the West Coast came to the office. Um, his name was Elliot Webb. Now, Elliot Webb, for those of you who don't know, is probably. You know, one of the greatest literary agents in the world and has been for probably 25 years, maybe 30 years. And he was just getting started there. And he said, why don't you move to California and come work for me? And I said, okay. (laughs) You mean you gave up your 175 a week? Uh, To make 175 a week on the West Coast. 
He offered you the same amount of money. I think it was the standard. It was something like that. It was something like that. Did the Peter Benchley checks inspire you that much? How like can you remember what the checks were back then? How big they were? I remember seeing like eight million dollar checks. Eight million. The other thing that was fascinating to me is I remember talking to somebody who was delivering my mail, and he told me he had a law degree, and I said, "You have a law degree." And you're delivering my mail. Um, his name is Andy Howard. I think he's a fairly successful talent manager. Yes, he is. Right now he's a successful talent manager. And um, but that was the very beginning of what, you know, what everybody does now. Like the qualifications to work in the William Morris or ICM or creative artists mailroom are huge. Huge. Um, but they, and you have to do a lot of these agencies, for those of you who don't know, these huge theatrical agencies here in Los Angeles and New York. Like, for instance, at CAA, one of the things that can happen sometimes is you can bypass the mailroom and get a job on somebody's on desk, desk and be there for a year. But guess what? It's an unbelievable thing that has to happen. And I don't know if I believe it's still true of this day. After you work a year, you have to go back to the mailroom wow. to experience what it's like there and, and, and see that part of it before you can go back again. Right. There's formal so, agent trainee programs. Yes. I I guess I sidestepped them in, at that time. I remember uh, a friend of mine in New York who was a great showrunner named Bill Persky who created a show called Kate and Allie. He once told me a story of how when he was doing his first show that he was working on and um, there were these two guys from the William Morris New York mailroom that used to deliver scripts and you could always tell people that we're going to do something in the business and he said there were two people that delivered scripts that after they delivered the scripts and they left you actually had fear after they left, you just felt like these guys were going to be something special. It turned out that was Barry Diller and Michael Ovitz. <laughs> so uh, a lot of great people starred in these mailrooms. Absolutely. But, and there were a lot of great people at ICM in New York. Literary shared the floor with theatrical, not film and television, but theater. Um, there was a great woman by the name of Sheila Robinson, who unfortunately passed away. And I remember her coming back and saying, I just came from Shakespeare in the Park and I saw this amazing actress, Meryl Streep. And I remember Richard Gere coming, Milton Goldman represented a lot of movie stars then. And they, you know, they'd come up to the office. It was a very, very relaxed environment. How do you get into the casting world? A friend of mine named Rhonda Young, who had been a very successful casting director at the time, said, can you come and help me with this show? They're recasting, you know, they're, we have to replace Suzanne Summers for the final year of Three's Company. And she was very busy. She was casting all of Stallone's movies. She had a lot on her plate. And I walked in to the casting office and she said, I got to go. Take, will you take care of this? And I just did. And it was just like everything in my life up until that point had 
trained me for that moment where I'm calling agents. And in those days, Scott Manners. Scott Manners from Stone Manners, which, by the way, for those of you actors and actresses listening, Scott Manners and his partner, Tim Stone, who's now in New York, two of the greatest agents you could ever find. And they would have a job anywhere in the world as an agent, but they decided to keep and do their own thing, have the best eye for talent. And Donna would be the first ones to tell you that if they called her at any time to look at anybody, even though, even if she felt they were a hundred, even if the role was for a 350 pound African American woman and they recommended a 57 pound uh, white man, she would say, oh, okay, I'll see him because that's the kind of eye they have and reputation they have. I guess I wanted to say for your audience and people who are looking to work in the profession. I think you have to be ready to do anything. I think you have to have a very varied skill set because here I was, I didn't even know what casting was. I had seen some casting sessions go in and out of the production office I worked on, but it was, it was, it was just really about knowing your stuff. And being able to handle people. And that is sort of the key to everything. And so do you remember uh, recasting Suzanne Summers? Do you remember who it came down to? Priscilla Barnes. Priscilla Barnes. Yep. And then from there, I worked with Rhonda on several projects, including... The original Beverly Hills Cop to star in. I want you to tell our audience this story because a lot of people don't know this, including my producers. Sylvester Stallone was originally attached to be Beverly Hills Cop. I really don't know the ins and outs of what happened, but I guess it was uh, some creative differences between he and Marty Brest, who directed the original film. And he was out and Eddie Murphy was in and that franchise was born. I stayed on with Marjorie Simpkin, another great casting director, and worked on that project and learned a lot from her. Um, Then I continued um, in those days, particularly with the Rambo and Rocky franchises, Um, Stallone had an enormous amount of say. He basically did whatever he wanted. So Stallone would come in the office a lot? Yeah, no, we'd go to his office and it was the kind of thing that, um... What was it like working with Sylvester Stallone? Tell me about your first meeting with Sylvester (laughs) Stallone. Were you nervous? I was very nervous and, um... I really sort of was a little part of his entourage, became part of his entourage, traveled with him, worked on a bunch of movies. He directed a movie with Dolly Parton and um, he was incredibly nice to me and incredibly respectful and would ask my opinion. And I remember we were looking for the competitor in Rocky four. 
And I had a stack of pictures. And that's how simplistic it was in the sense of a filmmaker being just able to make a decision. I showed him a picture of Dolph Lundgren, who was at that time, I believe, and we could check up this history. I believe he was working as a bouncer at a restaurant or something like that. And he said, that's it. Off the picture. Off the picture. Without even seeing anything of him or having him audition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He believed he could get the performance out of him. Mm-hmm. Wow. And was it a picture of him doing the splits? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, but soon after um, the work with Rhonda, which was really, you know, I was very, and we were casting Staying Alive. And we had cast Cynthia Rhodes as one of the girl. They were two girls that were had to be dancers and work with Travolta. And we saw a tape from England. We had taped auditions by then. Um, and the actress's name was Fanola Hughes, who to this day is a very, very close friend of mine. And... She was cast in that film. And one of the first things I did when I came to ABC, which is where I went after working with Rhonda. In 1984. In 1984, was to introduce her to Gloria Monti, who was uh, the creator of General Hospital and the character of Anna Devane, which she portrayed for many years. And I think they brought her back to life. Um, was born. And there's actually, uh, Finola has done several interviews and they all talk about her living on my couch for two years. <laughs> <laughs> and then at ABC, it, I just oversaw a lot of fantastic programming. When I got there, the first thing I did was look at an, at an audition of Bruce Willis for Moonlighting. Wow. Now, was Sybil Shepard already hired? She was already hired, I believe. And also looked at an audition, you know, looked at all the auditions for Roseanne and was involved with NYPD Blue. And I remember reading the first script of 30-something and thinking it was my life. And the way 30-something was cast was that Ed Swick and Marshall Herskovitz brought in six actors and they read three scenes all together. And that was their audition. And how did you embrace yourself with the network that they had the confidence in you to make you the head of casting only three short years later? I mean, I think partly I was in the right place at the right time, but I think I, you know, met actors like Anthony LaPaglia and Billy Baldwin and just people who had not worked before. Um, and I oversaw very, very successful shows. And What I, were some of the most successful shows you oversaw before you became the head of casting? Roseanne was for sure. I think NYPD Blue, I was already the head of casting. Twin Peaks, Home Improvement. Um, and 
I did a lot of talent outreach. I was the first person who went to the Montreal Comedy Festival. Which, by the way, we could make the announcement uh, as we speak here because uh, we just got the call that Industry Standard is going to be going to Montreal and doing a podcast out there. And uh, very excited about that as well. So you were the first person to go to the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival. Well, no, I I was the first first talent executive to bring a business affairs person with me. Oh, and for those of you who don't know, that the reason why uh, Donna did that and had the idea of doing that, and it's an amazing thing that used to happen up in Montreal, is comedians would be doing shows up there, and there'd be all these people from all the networks wanting to do a deal with them, wanting to do business with them. But what would happen is they'd have to wait until they got back to town. And by the time they got back to town the buzz went around to all the other networks and then you were competing with everybody else. Donna had the incredible wisdom to bring the business affairs person up with her so that when she saw somebody she loved, she could sit in a room with them and their manager or their agent or their lawyer and do the deal before the heat got out on the person. And then before anybody knew it, the deal was done, and then the word would circulate through the Montreal Just for Last Festival. Did you hear that this guy got a deal already? I've heard, and that year we made a deal with Steve Harvey, and then we subsequently did Me and the Boys. Which, this is another thing that's so weird about network television back then. Me and the Boys, and another show around that time that I believe Donna was involved with, the Jeff Foxworthy show. Mm-hmm. These were two shows that were like top 20 shows. Both of them didn't really fit on any network. But yet they were getting like, and I'm not kidding when I say this, they were getting over 20 million people a week watching them. But for some reason, and Donna might be able to explain this to our audience, they were both canceled. They were top 20, 25 shows, and they were both canceled, getting 20 million, 20 million uh, people a week. And I know you were involved in getting Steve Harvey at the network. I think you were involved with Jeff Foxworthy. Both of them had never had any real acting training at all, but they were huge. In your opinion, why would the network cancel shows that were doing so well? Well, I think in those years, um, the standards were higher in terms of numbers. The amount of the hut levels, houses using television, were much higher. Um, A perfect example of that as well was a show I was very involved with called China Beach, um, where we tested Helen Hunt opposite Dana Delaney. And then Dana did the show and and won an Emmy. But whatever the number was, Wednesday at 10, whatever the rating was when China Beach was canceled, because that's one I remember distinctly, it was canceled and I don't think anything came near that number since 
so, you know, it was just really about advertising and viewership. And there was at the, and in those days there was no competition. We didn't have cable shows or anything else. It was network television was it. So tell me, let's go back to the Montreal just for last festival, because you were an integral part of those festivals. And when you were there, people were excited and they knew things could happen for them. And if you were a comedian, you knew that if you did well and you had a point of view, exactly, you could get a deal. So tell me some of the comedians that you made deals for at the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival that ended up doing development deals and, and getting on the air besides Tim Allen and Steve Harvey. I think that's, I think those are the ones. Those were the that, big ones. Those were, I think those were the big ones. And yeah. uh, I remember Tim Allen, if I'm not mistaken, I know I'm not mistaken. I came out here because I wanted to be a manager and I came out here, I remember, and I called a friend of mine who was a, a young manager, he used to book show, his name Rick Messina. And Rick Messina represented Drew Carey and Tim Allen, still does, uh, but this is before anything happened. And I remember Rick Messina had an office by the comedy store in the building, I believe, where Katsuya is right now uh, on Sunset Boulevard. And I walk into his office and it's just one big room. Um, and there's like four desks and one in each corner and he's just working in one big room. I didn't know what a manager did or whatever. And he was telling me about a showcase that he was having at the improv that he was having after the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival. And I said, well, why are you having a showcase after the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival? He said, well... I just want to make sure one more time that we get him out there and they, everybody sees what this guy can do. And from what I remember him telling me is that Tim got a standing ovation, not only in Montreal, but also at the showcase. And the next day he thought like all these calls were going to come in. And all these calls did come in, but they'd say, hey, he's great. He was fantastic, but we're not, we don't know what to do with him. And he said only one group entity wanted to do something with him. One studio and Disney. one network. Disney, ABC. Disney and ABC. And Gene Blythe was his champion. And Gene Blythe, who is a great casting director as well, who was at the... Uh, Disney and then segued into ABC as well. Big champion and um, the rest is history. You know, I think that what happened shortly after the Steve Harvey and um, a couple of other deals that came out of Montreal was that everyone was getting a deal. Anybody who was good and had a point of view and I think that market became oversaturated. And I think that you have to be a great stand-up comedian and have a point of view, but also be a good actor to go the distance. How would you know? How would you know, Donna? What was your, what was the tell when you went and saw a stand-up comedian do their set? How did you know they could act? With 
I'll use Steve Harvey as an example because I thought he was very intelligent. Um, he had a point of view. He had had a lot. I mean, up until then, he was a big radio personality. And he had a, he had a following, which I didn't know about because I didn't really know him before Montreal. And it just felt like he had the whole package. He had a lot of substance. Yeah, I remember I, I asked him to do a speech for the New York Comedy Festival. I was doing something in my club for an urban crowd, sort of like a seminar for an urban crowd. And 200 African-American comedians showed up in my club and he gave a speech. And the part of his speech that I'll never forget, this is after he was doing the television show. He said, I'm looking out at a lot of faces in this crowd that are familiar to me. And one thing you all have to realize is that I look at you and I see comics. You guys are comics. You know what a comic is? A comic is a guy who's doing their act to try to get seven minutes together so they can go to the Montreal just for laughs festival and get a development deal and get their own sitcom off of seven minutes of material. The difference between me and all of you motherfuckers is I'm a comedian. Every night I do comedy and all I care about hearing, I don't care about a development deal. I don't care about being famous I don't care about anything. I care about being the funniest person that I can possibly be. And there's only one thing I want to hear. I don't want to hear you got a development deal. I don't want to hear you got your own show. I only want to hear one thing at the end of the day. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Steve Harvey. And if I do my job and I am the funniest comedian I possibly can be, the world will find me. And it did. Take me through some of your holy shit casting moments, similarly to the Helen Hunt, where you're working on a show, people are coming in, and no one knows who the hell they are. Nobody gives the time of day to you. Nobody cares. Nobody respects them. And then they become huge, and you give them a shot. Well, I think the... Um... My uh, biggest story is probably Stana Caddick on Castle. Nathan Fillion was cast early on. Castle was kind of an off season. wasn't during the regular pilot season. It was a little bit under the radar. We had, I don't know, 80 women read with Nathan, not just... That's, that's, there were probably 200 that read for me. Which is very unusual that you would bring 80 people to read with the lead actor. Normally you pair things down as a casting director, you pair it down and maybe you got the final 10, you might say, Hey, would you mind coming in the office and, and reading with some people? But that shows you also, if an actor is very invested and it means the world to him, he will come to every session you want him to come to. 
and he will be there and he'll do everything he can to get the right person. And um, and he did. And when Stana came in the first time, there was something there. There was something smart and sassy and they had chemistry. But there were so many more well-known women that were interested in the part. And we wound up coming back to her for a screen test. And who was she screen testing against? You well, remember? The, the first test was not a screen test. The first test was a studio test. And for those of you who don't know how this works in television, you do test deals for people who you want. You work and you negotiate the deal with their lawyer and their agent and their manager and you come up with a six-year, six-and-a-half-year kind of contract that's ironclad, that tells you what you're making for the pilot, what you're making for the series episodes, what your bumps or increases are, what kind of dressing room you have, what kind of billing you have. And it's all negotiated prior to you walking into the room. The reason for that is similar to why Donna would bring a business affairs person to Montreal is you don't want somebody getting full of themselves and saying hey look I got the role now pay me more than this or pay me more than that and so you put test deals together for people normally you will test a minimum of two people a maximum of maybe five people for a role and then you go to the studio that's deficit financing it like a Sony or something like that and you test just for those executives and then those executives decide how many of, let's say there's five, how many of those five are moving forward in the network and they have an idea who their favorite is and they try to position that favorite in a way to get the gig. So they might surround that person with less talented people or they might figure out a way to do it in the order so that they have a much more beneficial slot. We got to ABC Studios that day. Um, Mark Pedowitz at the time, who's a great human being, was the president of the studio. And we walked into the room that we were going to do the tests. And the air conditioning was broken. And I said to myself, this is not going to go well. There's... And the reason why Donna probably said it wasn't going to go that well is, number one, Castle, I believe, is a show that sort of mixes a little bit of humor with a little bit of drama, sort of like a justified for... Well, it was moonlighting. Yeah. You know, it was really like moonlighting. Yeah. And so comedy, if you've ever been to see a Letterman show in New York, the air conditioning is on, you could like raise veal in that (laughs) studio because laughter is more contagious when it's cooler and when there's heat, it's very difficult to get any kind of response out of anybody. So we had to go to a different room. And the women who were testing, and I don't think there was anybody of, that anyone of note that test. They were all fairly unknown. And Stana came in and, you know, I love her. We're great friends. She had cut her hair. She looked different. Than she had a week before. Why do you think she did that? 
I don't know. I've never asked her that. Um, Note to self as an actor and actress. Don't cut your hair. If you've gotten the gig and you've gotten to the test, you'll notice there's a lot of superstitions. And if you talk to a lot of actors and actresses. People don't wear the same clothes to every audition. Yeah. Some people will, if they do well in a certain outfit, and a certain bag or a certain thing, they will wear that throughout the thing. They will dry clean it and keep wearing it over and over again because they want to give that illusion of what it was that got them to where they were. Well, Stana kind of froze that day. I think it was just an ill-fated day. And we all went back to the drawing board. And we started reading again and again and again. And then we narrowed it down to two people and we got to do a film test. And I believe it was the last time ABC for sure did a film test with film that could be edited, not a video test that... This is it, you know, take the takes you like. This was Nathan and Stana cutting back and forth, Rob Bowman directing it. And she just won the role. And and it's interesting because it goes back to, and there's a lot of controversy about live tests versus tape tests. The very first screen test I saw at ABC was Bruce Willis. If it had been live in the room, I don't know. So there's some auditions that work live and some don't. But the bottom line is it's the film tells all. And I think for the most part, actors do better on tape. And I think pretty much most networks now and most tests are are done on tape. Casting... Pilots for network television is hard. There's a lot of opinions. Um, there's a lot of ways to fail and very few ways to succeed and just score. And a particularly hard thing to do is to get unknown people roles. People that a network is spending a lot of money potentially wanting to gamble on somebody with a bit of a track record. Which, if you don't mind me interjecting here, which is the paradox of being an actor or an actress. Because basically these networks are spending millions and millions of dollars on these shows. And they want to know that they have proven people who have been on a sound stage or been in front of a camera hundreds of times so they can hedge their bets. But then if that's the case, well, how are you ever going to get a gig as a young actor? And there's only one way you're going to get a gig as a young actor or actress. And that's being 10 times better than everybody else that comes in the room. And if you're 10 times better than everybody else who goes in the room, uh, using a Stone Manor's original client, Beth Bears from Two Broke Girls, which uh, Donna Rosenstein cast in her only 
guest shot that she'd done in three years in Hollywood. One guest shot was on her resume, but she got two broke girls because she went in the room and she was 10 times better than everybody else for that role. That guest shot was on Castle. That's correct. This Donna Rosenstein discovered that young lady. When we were casting Grimm, Bob Greenblatt had just come to NBC. And Bob Greenblatt Showtime. is the president of NBC, who used to be the president of Showtime. And we did live tests. We did some live tests. And we brought in a couple of actors and David Giantoli, who had never had his moment, but had been a solid working actor and was ready for his moment. And I think that that's something that you've been talking about. And I've been in that, I've been in those rooms with Bob and Bob, for those of you who don't know Bob or know of Bob and Donna has worked with tons of network presidents and the one thing you can say about Bob Greenblatt is the fact that when you're in a room with Bob, you are one of him. It feels like you're just a part of a crowd with him. Now, don't get me wrong. At the end of the test, everybody still turns around and looks and sees what he thinks. And it's this weird thing in a test when you're with a president, especially Bob. You're in a room with a studio. You could be in a room with 30 people. The actor leaves the room, everybody's head turns around and looks at Bob. Nobody says anything. They just wait for him to say something. But I can guarantee you, after Bob says something, Donna Rosenstein is the type of person that will say something too. So take me back through those. Uh, well, um, after David Giantoli auditioned, Bob turned to our group, which included Mark Buckland, the director, and David Greenblatt and Jim Kauf, who created the show, and Todd Milner and Sean Hayes. Um, and said, guys, what do you think? And they said, we, you know, we want David. And he said, okay. I almost fell off my chair. Because the idea that we could actually cast him and nobody in America knew who he was was fantastic and you know Bob as many great executives uh, have this philosophy that I think I've shared a few different times if you really want to be successful as an executive overseeing things like this if you have great talent that you have paid a lot of money to the key to success is getting the fuck out of the way. And if they feel like they want to make a decision like that, as a network president, you have to say to yourself, is this role going to make or break things, whether I have a household name or I don't, or is it worth me undercutting my creative team that I want to believe in me? Well, that was, that was a phenomenal experience. And the rest of the casting pretty much followed suit. Um, and 
to the point where we were pretty much cast except for a couple of roles. Everybody went up to Portland. I stayed and showed tape on Silas Weir Mitchell and Sasha Ruiz. And if you guys are grim fans, the Hexen Beast, Claire Coffey, had one line in the pilot. One line. And I always go back to the pilot of 30-something, where Patty Wedig had one line at the end. And her character took over the show. And I can't tell you how many times in my life that there have been actors and actresses who I've represented who I say, hey, there's this great pilot, there's this great show, but there's only one line. And they just say, fuck it. What, what, do, you, what do you think of me, Barry? What kind of actor do you think I am to go in for one line? And there's that old, old adage that says... There are no small roles, only small actors. That's right. And that's the thing is you have to look at these situations. Jeremy Piven in Entourage, he was in the pilot for probably like two minutes. Three Emmys later, he's the man. And, and, And that's the thing is you always have to look where you can make your mark. Just get in. Get in as an actor and actor. Get in anywhere you can and make a difference. There was that Marilyn Monroe movie where she was on screen for seven minutes. Seven minutes. And she became a huge star. I remember Charlize Theron in Two Days in the Valley. I remember watching that movie. I, I was like, who is that person? It's incredible. So while you were at ABC as the head of casting, just tell me about just a few actors or actresses during that time where you were in your heyday there that, you know, something happened or a show was cast or a story behind something where one of the big shows that came about during that time at ABC where you were involved in the the nuts and bolts behind the scenes. Well, I can tell you about some... Actors, one particular story, there was an actress from New York that had been on a soap opera for several years, and I was introduced to her, and I made a talent holding deal with her. And she was cast in a pilot, and they could never, for whatever reason, the pilot wasn't made, Um, they never found the lead or whatever, didn't work out. She went off and her name was Julianne Moore. (laughs) Laura Linney. Very similar situation. Uh, There was a pilot back in the 80s where we replaced Annette Bening. You replaced Annette Bening. Annette Bening got fired, everybody. And, you know, you just, it's, it's all about the timing, the right project, the right fit. Um, that's, it happens to everyone. Who are some actors that came in that are doing well today? Because, you know, as a casting director, what happens a lot of times is that you see people and it's like anything else. It's almost like dating. Uh, at least not the dating that I have uh, experienced, but it's like dating. If you come in your first audition with Donna Rosenstein 
and you're horrible and your manager or your agent tries to get you back there for another thing, she's not going to bring you back. Maybe after begging for three, four, five projects and you saying, hey, they've been studying, I promise you when they come back, they're going to be good. But chances are you're not going to get another shot. But if you go in for Donna Rosenstein and you're extraordinary, but you don't get the gig, she's got you on lists. Your agent and manager doesn't even have to call. You don't even need an agent or manager when it comes to her because she's always going to call you every single time until she books you in a gig. And her sole mission, if she loves you, is to book you in a job until she dies. She's got to figure out a way to get you into a gig. And you'll know casting directors like that if you're an actor or an actress. You'll know the ones I'm talking about who take a special interest in certain actors and actresses who kill themselves, but for some reason they just don't get the gig and they will do everything until you get it. And that'll be the story and one of the highlight chapters of their lives is that they were the one that finally got you in a gig. And so just take me through a few more people that came in that for some reason... After they left, you're like, listen, man, I, I hope you have a waiter job because there is no way you're working in this town. And for some reason, they turned it around and they became great. Do you remember some of those people? I feel for the most part, I'm I'm pretty lucky that people that come in to see me come in prepared. Um, and if they don't, it's it's very rare. But not everybody's right for every part. Um, I remember casting a pilot called Good Behavior that never went. And we had to cast a part of twins. And we, we wound up casting Patrick Adams, Patrick J. Adams. And nobody ever saw the pilot. I don't even think the network saw the pilot. It was a complete mess. And he's gone on to star in Suits. And he's gone on to star in Rosemary's Baby, I think, is coming out for NBC. And um, I did a little straight-to-video thing. It was Home Alone 3. Mm -hmm. And I met a young boy named Josh Hutcherson. Wow. And he didn't get the role. You know, now his future with Hunger Games is 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 really is is really is really. Well, look, Jennifer certain. Lawrence was uh, Bill Engvall's daughter in uh, yeah. a TBS show, so yeah. anything can happen. Anything can happen, and what I'm thinking though is people in your audience thinking, "I just want to get in the room. How do I get in the room with you?" How do I become one of these people that has one of these stories? Because it's really hard. And how do they get in the room from your perspective? You know, I will admit that it's getting harder and harder in television because there are less features made. Movie stars are doing TV leads. 
TV leads are doing supporting roles. TV supporting people are doing guest stars. So what happens to all those great working actors? Well, I'm lucky that I cast a show that's been on for seven years. It's going into its seventh season. And we get to see so many people and we get to cast so many people. Um, A lot of great character actors, a lot of people that auditioned for Castle six times and we laugh about it and we say, this is the one, this is the episode that they're going to get. And I think it, it all comes back to sort of the beginning in terms of being prepared, um, being the best as, at what you do when you get those, when you get that opportunity, because I think that a casting director who's worth their salt can tell the difference between somebody who's having a bad day and an off day and somebody who is just not ready and not prepared and hasn't studied. Now, here's an interesting thing that I tell actors to do. And you tell me if I'm telling the wrong thing or the right thing. They go in, they do their audition, and you say, good job, thank you. And I say to them, if you feel that even for 10% of what you did wasn't the best you could do or the right tone or there was one thing where you took a different way that you thought should be different, I always tell them to say to you, um, excuse me, Donna, before I go, would, I know you got a lot of people. Would you mind if I just tried it one more time? Because I really feel like I, I, I have more to this to give. There's very rarely will you say no unless they completely laid an egg. And even if they laid an egg, you give them that shot. But most people are scared to do that in the room. They're intimidated to say that and they don't say, may I do it again? And I think it's very important to do that because you have a second chance. And and if you are an actor or an actress out there, yes, it is a tough gig. But I will tell you what's a tougher gig brain surgeon yeah. brain surgeon a hundred operations a hundred successes no second chance. one failure and you're out of a job and you're out of your profession in acting for those of you listening actors and actresses you can go in and audition for people like donna a hundred times and you can fail 99 times or Yes, you can fail 99 times like Beth Bears and you go in one time and do well. And if you can fool them four times for five minutes in pilot season, your audition with the casting director, your audition with the casting director and the producers, your callback and test for the studio, your test for the network. 20 fucking minutes you have to can you imagine and women out there can you imagine going on four dates for five minutes and saying okay i gotta decide whether i can marry this guy or not seven years you can be on a show for four or five minute takes and this is really really important about it so i think that the thing is is that you always 
got to do everything you can to be the best you could be. Now, before we get into the final roundup, when you left ABC, I think one of the things I want you to talk about in 1999, there was a period of your life where you were like, here you were like king of the hill. Everybody knew you. You were the most respected person I know in this business. You leave ABC and the casting to profession kind of takes a weird turn and it becomes a struggle and people aren't giving you the gigs as much as you think they should give you. Even when you're interviewing, you're not getting the gigs. You find yourself during a five to 10 year period where you now have become the person that you've been auditioning. You become the actor. You're walking in these rooms and you're trying to get a job and it wasn't going well. And what was weird is that you were getting certain things but you were like an actor going up for a job and not getting the gigs. And there was this one story that I remember you telling me where things were particularly bleak and you took a risk for a show called October Road. Why don't you tell our audience what happened when you walked in for your interview with all the producers of October Road? Uh, after being rejected for several jobs that week. <laughs> Um, and really, really liking the script and really, really wanting it. I just walked in. I said, who do I have to fuck to get this job? (laughs) (laughs) And that was it. It was kind of love at first sight with a group of amazing writer producers who have gone on to do Mission Impossible 3, are now writing Beverly Hills Cop, um, Josh Applebaum, Andre Nemec, and Scott Rosenberg. And they're, we're all great friends, and we've done several several shows together. And yes, I did take a risk. Um, it's a little different for an actor in that they were probably meeting three casting directors that day. Whereas an actor coming in for an audition might be one of 30. I think you said something that's interesting here. I want to know your opinion on this for actors and actresses out there. Now, another thing I always tell people who go into test, I always say to them, have a different funny thing prepared for the moment you walk in the room. Something that separates you And then, because if you move on to the next level, then you say something different. Make it look like you're improving whatever line it is you're saying. Now, for a woman, I've been in rooms where women have gotten roles where they actually walked in the test. And before they started, they just walked in. They were wearing a really nice outfit. And they looked at all the studio presidents and heads. And this says, okay, before I get started, who do I have to fuck here to get this gig? And they'll get the gig because they realize that they, it was the the people in the room realize, wow, that was that was a risk, that was ballsy. They took a chance, and if they're equal to the other actress who's testing, they'll get the gig because they took the risk. Now, however, if the other actress testing is much better, they won't get the gig. But there's little things you can do right at the beginning that give you the advantage if all the actors testing are around the same range. Do you agree or disagree or do you just like it when people walk in and they just say, are you ready? Ready when you are? Okay. Or do you like it when somebody walks in and actually does something that 
that makes you smile that nobody else does? I, that's a tough question because sometimes that can work very well and sometimes that can backfire. Um, it has to be very brief because the focus of any audition is the audition. Um, on a higher network studio level, pretty much everything now is going to be on tape. So no one's ever going to meet you. When you're auditioning for producers, you have that, you have that more of that opportunity. And I have to say that everybody's different. I can't give you a hard and fast rule on that. You just have to get a sense of how receptive the particular group is when you walk in. And that comes from experience um, and auditioning as much as you can. Would you have gotten that gig on October Road had you not said, who do I have to fuck to get this gig? Yes or no? I don't know the answer to that. I think you do. Yeah, I don't know if I would have gotten it. I, I, I... Did it increase your chances of getting it? Yes. It definitely did because they kind of got me right away. But I had to have the goods to back it up. And I think that that's, that's the whole thing in a nutshell. After I said that and after they thought I was cool and fun and interesting, I had to talk about actors that I liked. I had to impress them with my knowledge of actors. I had to assure them that I was the best person to do the job. And I think that everything is about that. It's about knowing that you can do the job. Um, I think that auditioning is an art. Um, I like to call it sometimes audition directing when I'm in the room with a director who's directing actors and I'll say, yeah, but for the audition, let's do it this way. And I think the fact that a lot of what we do, even guest stars is on tape is a good thing for actors because when you're working on a show with a seven day prep and everybody's rushed, you could walk in, be perfectly good, just have the wrong take on a character and not get the job. If you come in the room with me and I see something, I'm going to work with you and you're going to do it four times. And the producers and director are going to see that performance. And that's a great thing about technology. Because in the old days, not the old days, even like five or 10 years ago, Donna's office was like boxes and boxes and stacks and stacks of hedge. A cat, there would, I don't care who tells you differently. 
There wasn't a casting director in the world whose office didn't look like an A-bomb victim from Nagasaki. Now a casting director's office is actually organized. And there's like no papers anywhere. And it's all on the computer. It's incredible. Tell me a television show that's on the air, whether you cast it, you didn't cast it, whatever it is in your lifetime that you've seen that's made the most impact on you that you thought was the greatest show in the history of television for you? I would say Modern Family. Why? I think it's incredibly well-written, incredibly well-cast, and very real. Got it. Tell me a casting director or casting directors who you look at and you respect tremendously. They're like the highest level of the business in your mind that they're just the best. I think Denise Chamian comes to mind. And tell us about Denise and why you feel that she's one of the best or the best. She started in television. Then she moved on to features. She loves actors. She works really hard. And I'd also have to say my friend Susan Bluestein, who casts NCIS. Casting directors want you to succeed as much or more as you want to succeed because that's our job and we want you to be great and we want you to get the role and we're your biggest fans. You know, you say that, but I know a lot of actors and actresses, they walk in these rooms and there's like a heaviness. There's like a darkness. There's like, it's like you're walking into a room where literally somebody has like five hours to do 40 hours of work and you just feel like you, they're always running behind. They're always rushing and there's never the right kind of attention, the right kind of energy. When they're reading with you, you actually feel sometimes like you're reading with a functionally disabled person. They've seen the sides. They've known the script there for, for months, yet they're reading it like they're reading it for the first time with no feeling, no emotion, no nothing. Why is a casting office oftentimes so devoid of warmth and energy and positivity. Why is that? Well, I can't speak to that personally because I like to believe my office is not like that. Um, particularly when we're casting pilots, we always bring in a reader, a professional actor or actress. Um, and I don't know how many calls I'm going to get about this, but it's an incredible opportunity for any actor to be a reader in a casting office. You learn so much. And I just want you to know that I've been doing this a long time, too long. (laughs) That is the first time that I've ever heard that in my life, because normally what I hear from casting directors 
is that the money is being cut so low on jobs that you don't even have enough money a lot of times to hire the right assistant that you want for something, let alone a reader. Well, we don't pay them. They, they So it's like an internship. Well, it's just somebody who comes in just for the session. You know, for a couple of hours. Got it. And reads with the other actors. Have you ever given one of those people a job on a show? Yeah. All right. Yeah. And in fact, it works both ways. Um, Her name is Maya Stoygen. She did a day on Castle. And now she's the tech. She did 12 episodes this year. And she came in we were casting a pilot which unfortunately didn't get picked up we just found out and and she read with the actors and um she paid it forward and vice versa we you know we try to give at least audition opportunities to all the people that come in particularly in comedy it makes such a difference when you have a good person reading, reading opposite you. And um, I have some people that work with me that are very good readers. And if I don't have a good reader, I will bring someone in. I, I think it's so unfair to actors to not have somebody alive reading opposite them. I mean, yeah, we have our off days. We get tired, we get run behind, we get scripts that we have to cast in very few days. You know, many people will say to me, you know, and agents will say, you know, why are you just making offers? Why, you know, why can't you read people? It's only because we don't have time. I will say that seeing a grown man cry being in an audition where you see an actor come up with so much emotion is probably the highlight of what I do. And when we cast Necessary Roughness, we were casting um, a football player who was, um, McCod Brooks played the role. And... He actually didn't audition for the role, but we had many amazing auditions. It was, he was supposed to be Terrell Owens and kind of a bad boy of football. And he kind of, you know, had a breakdown. And to see these guys come in and just really own it was, was really something. What's your biggest disappointment professionally? My biggest disappointment professionally... Um, I think October Road not staying on the air. I'm really, really proud of that cast. Um, I'm proud of the ensemble. Um, it was really exciting casting Laura Prepon in her first drama. Um, and... We discovered Odette Annabelle, who works quite a bit for that show, Jeff Stoltz. Um, 
just a great ensemble of actors who work all the time and great people. And it was just really sad to see it not get the chance to grow. Your proudest moment professionally. I think Casting Castle would have to be my proudest moment professionally to create an ensemble and to create an, a relationship that was able to endure so many years and stay fresh. I'm very proud of that. Uh, what words of wisdom would you give to the young person who wants to be a casting director and wants to make the kind of impact and change lives that you make and you have made? What do you have for those people who are somewhere in the world just thinking, hey, how do I get out of my studio apartment or wherever I am and get into this profession? And then as a second part to the question is, what advice do you have the young actor, actress, comedian to get to the point where they can make an impact to you in the room and blow you away, blow studio executives away, blow network presence away to get the gigs, get on television and move their careers to the next level? Well, I'll address the actor part first. I think in any profession, I believe in being the best person you can be and being the best at anything that you can be and being prepared and to work in television for the most part, it's hard if you're not in New York or LA, it's just where the work is. There is a lot of work in Vancouver. There's a lot of work in new Orleans. There's a lot of work in, in, in different places. I think the actors, I think being off book is an underemphasized. Yeah, we say, oh, don't worry, look at the page, look at the page, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. But I think if you have, if you've got the words, it, you're halfway there because you have the confidence to really perform. And I think what they don't teach in a lot of drama schools and something I've thought about teaching, but I'm not sure if I want to, is the art of the procedural. Working on a procedural, which many television shows are. And when you come in for any kind of supporting role, it's not about you. It's about moving the story along. It's about doing your job as part of a bigger whole and doing your job quickly and professionally. And, you know, the internet gives you the ability to understand what technical jargon might be, pronunciation of words. Um, you know, people come in and pronounce words incorrectly. Yeah, people make mistakes, but for the most part, that's really easy to do before you come in. So being prepared is the most thing, the most important thing I can tell you. And, you know, act anywhere you can, any kind of community theater, any kind of open call that you can go to, any kind of local casting. I think staying busy in your craft 
is what keeps you fresh and keeps you ready for the moment that might be your big break. In terms of the casting profession, um, I think actually, I believe Mark Hirschfeld, who um, was on one of your podcasts, I believe he's Casting involved. director of Seinfeld yeah. and many, many, many others. I believe he's involved. Is it Syracuse University that now has a casting program? I think so, yes. Um, I think it's a profession. There's Go see the documentary called Casting By. Um, it talks about the beginnings of an kind of an uns- unsung profession that is now becoming much more known and much more visible and much more important. Most casting directors are in New York, LA, Toronto, Vancouver. There are some fine casting directors in the South Um, There are some in Chicago um, working in a casting office, getting an internship, watching a lot of television and films, knowing as many actors as you can. And the more familiar you are with what you're auditioning for and what you're could be casting for, it's just everything. If I have somebody that, works in my office that is really in the know about what's current, what's happening. It's a huge, huge benefit and really puts them a cut above. When I interview for an assistant, you know, one of the questions I'll ask is what TV do you watch? What films do you watch? And it's just important to have that shorthand. What comedy clubs do you go to? And it's the same for actors and for casting directors being prepared. That's awesome. That's fantastic. This is going to be incredibly inspirational to all the people in the business and outside of the business that want to know how to get to the next level. And your story is tremendous. And I'm so grateful that you came here and did this. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It was was my pleasure. And I think it's fantastic that you're doing this and you can reach out to so many people. I wish when I was uh, doing talent shows on the streets in Brooklyn, I could go to my computer and watch something like this. Oh, cool. Thank you. And as always, if you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. (laughs) This is Barry Katz with another episode of Industry Standard. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamer. They have
yourself out to gain. It's never quite over till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.